In every culture, there are words and ways to tell us who we are as people. Age-old Africans tell the tale of Mother Lion and her cubs. For our guest, Dr. Nayahat Gray Morning, member of the Arapaho Nation, it's a story about the power of the golden eagle and a message. Nothing is so small that it's not capable of putting something much greater than itself in motion. Roar and soar. Today on the Janice Adams Show, on this Thanksgiving Day weekend, we're having a conversation across two cultures. It's about the power of words and language itself. What do our words and how we use them say about who we are? First, the news. Say what you mean and mean what you say. It's a familiar ode to the power of language and of character. So who are we? And what do we lose of ourselves when the words we speak no longer mean what they were intended to say? What do we lose if we aren't who we are? Words and identity roar and soar. That's our topic today on The Janice Adams Show. We're sharing a conversation across two cultures, mine as an African-American of Caribbean descent and that of our guest, Dr. Neahit Graymorning. He's a professor of anthropology and Native American studies at the University of Montana, a linguistic anthropologist and member of the Arapaho Nation. I asked him to pronounce his name, spelled... N-E-Y-O-O-X-E-T, Gray Morning. Nayachet. Well, properly, Nayachet, Gray Morning. I'm hearing a double syllable in there. Is that where the two O's are? Um, yeah, the Arapaho is a tonal language, and so there's a rising and falling in the where the, the O's are. So, Nayachet. But most people just say Nayachet. Let me start there. In your pronunciation of your name, what are we losing when we don't say your name correctly? And I think that's especially important in these times when we're looking at uh, some things that are going on politically. And then we say, well, who are we? And what do we lose if we're not who we are? Well, that's really um, an important question, and it's actually something I've been covering in my class in the past week and a half, Culture is Expressed Through Language. Um, and it's an area of socio, uh, social linguistics, and that's language and society and how language moves throughout society. So when my name is not said correctly, it has no meaning. Uh, my name has has meaning to it, and when you get to English, English names long ago those names had meaning as well, but they've sort of been lost over the over the ages. So when somebody says Robert, you know it just sounds Robert, but when you say Nayach, it it means something specifically. It actually means three different things specifically, and uh, many indigenous languages speakers of the language, in knowing what all three of those meanings could be, can use that word um, to pl- 
play with the speaker in certain ways or to to elevate the speaker. What are the three meanings? Well, when people ask me what does it mean, I tell them most often. The, the thing I tell them first off is caterpillar. But if I particularly don't like the person, I'll tell them it means the whirlwind. And they're getting in information about how I could be towards them oh. if they're on my wrong side. Okay. And the third meaning? It's that part in the back of the head where, there's a, where the hair swirls. <laughs> okay. And um, which meaning will we go with today? Caterpillar, <laughs> I guess. Tell us about you. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? In, in fact, I was introduced to you through New Paltz, which is my undergraduate. Um, I'm an alum of, of SUNY New Paltz. Tell us about yourself. Well, I am what's referred to as a grandparent child. I spent a lot of time um, being taken care of by grandparents or being with my grandparents. Um, so my father actually was um, a truck driver when I was quite young, um, and so he moved certain produce, and that meant he moved around, and we moved around a fair amount. Um, so I spent a lot of time with um, my grandparents in Oklahoma uh, while he was you know, trying to establish some sort of footing, I guess economic footing. By the time I got to... Um, junior high school, I was moved from there to my, my family had, um, my father had, and mother, I guess, both of them, had established a home on uh, Long Island. So I went to middle school, uh, junior high school and high school on Long Island. That's what got me to New Paltz. Um, so I for undergraduate is that for undergraduate yes and oh. then when I went when I um, graduated I returned back to Oklahoma and did my graduate work at the University of Oklahoma so that I could be back with family. So your BA what year? Um, Nineteen seventy three. Ah, I got you by a few. <laughs> <laughs> and what did you study at New Paltz? Um, well, originally I was going to be a psych major, but I was strongly influenced by a really wonderful um, anthropology teacher. So I switched to anthropology, and that's what I came out of New Paltz with, an anthropology degree. And that's what I did my graduate work. I was one of the first people to get a doctorate that, a degree that focused on political anthropology. So I do a lot of analysis of how laws um, have impacted uh, often the, the political independence of indigenous people. You were explaining the pronunciation of your name and, the, uh, and what that connotes in terms of the understanding of your name in Arapaho. How many people actually speak Arapaho these days? Well, in my lifetime, when I was coming out of high school, entering college, on the reservation in Wyoming, the Wind River Reservation, there were about 3,800 Arapaho, and out of 3,800, close to 2,000 spoke the language. Now, there are almost 10,000 on the reservation, and less than 100 speak the language. That's what's really frightening. When I hear things like that, I think of it in a double thing. Obviously, the 
preservation of culture and all of that. But I've just done a project for young people on the Underground Railroad, expressing to them how the spirituals are actually codes and so forth. And I just think it's important, especially in these times, to have another language, a language with in which you can communicate with the people you really need to communicate with. I was contacted by Homeland Security, and they wanted me to be a, a member of a group that was looking at um, centers of excellence against terrorism. So there were a lot of very important people in that room. And on the fourth day, I realized that culturally these people were doing something that they didn't understand um, as far as trying to understand the mind of the terrorist, I guess. And one of the things I said to them was that we all know about the Navajo code speakers. And one of the reasons why that worked is because there was a transmitter who was Navajo and spoke the language and a receiver. And I said in Arapaho, uh, this will give you an example of where you're missing the point with this, all of this. In Arapaho, if I say Hanin Sena, that on the surface means I have a cold. But somebody on the other end, knowing what the situation is, would hear it as, he is afraid of me. Mm. And that could be a signal about when is the best time to strike an enemy, mm. when he's afraid of me. Um, and so all those things are lost uh, yeah. in English because you don't have complete sentences that can mean more than one thing. Mm-hmm. Which is which is why it's so important to have Arapaho and that people understand it and can carry it forward. Yeah. I just think of it on a self-preservation level. That's a mark of who we are as a people. As an anthropologist, as a linguistic anthropologist, and now you're referring to the political anthropology, what does that tell us? Well, it has me looking closely at things um, that are of a political nature, um, things of legislation, acts, legal acts, laws, but also language. So one of the things about Trump's um, bid for presidency that I, was, that I found very interesting was, and I think people did not look at this careful enough, that the language that he used and the way he used language Anybody else that, that had done that in the past would have been heavily criticized and, and basically said, you can't be doing this. But the fact that he was getting away with it time and time again, he would say outrageous things that were offensive to different groups and wasn't really called on it. It was brought to people's attention. So the fact that he was getting away with that, to me, demonstrated that he was connecting with another group of people that were lying under the surface uh, of a lot of these these leaders, that, and they weren't paying enough attention to who he was connecting with. And I was telling people, you need to be careful about this because those people could rise up and decide to, to mobilize and get to the voting offices and bring this man into office. And that's exactly what I think happened. That is what they did, but it strikes me that there's still some of those people are women. Why did they not, whether in language or in culture or in just self 
possession identify with what with the problems of his speaking the way he was speaking about women some of those people who voted for him not a lot most likely but were latino or chicano why did they not you know understand the language behind his bullying of the judge who you know was was in charge of his fraud case in the case of Trump University and in in fact that's that is really interesting when you talk about language and the impact of language because there are laws against attacking judges um and even judges committees and yes there were attorneys general and people like that who spoke against it, but it was more like, not nice, Donald, not nice. It wasn't the fact that had it been anybody else, they could have been brought, arrested for trying to intimidate a judge. Yes. And that's a real puzzle. I mean, some of what you've asked is, um, I've, I've thought over the last year actually writing an article titled, America's Stockholm Sin, with Mm. sin spelled S-Y-N, as in syndrome. And we know what Stockholm Syndrome refers to, where you Mm -hmm. identify with your captor, and and all of a sudden there's this genuine bond that, you know, people don't quite understand why that happens, but, you know, people have studied it. And I've looked at some of that and have wondered if that is possibly something that we're overlooking when when we we see women and Latinos um, siding with a man who is most offensive towards them. Um, and, and I don't know. I haven't really looked at it close enough to really know or get some handle on it. But when you throw in something about, uh, when you throw in the last thing about um, getting in the face of a judge and getting away with it, that's what really becomes a puzzle. Because, I mean, I've done it myself, um, and I've and I, when I've done it, I've wondered about it. I got a traffic ticket on a reservation off, I mean, on a, a town just off the reservation, and I knew it was wrong. And I decided to um, challenge it with an, an audience with the judge, and I I knew I was pushing the boundaries um, because I was saying some things with this judge that I knew he could have put me in jail, you know, for for being um, uh, in contempt of court and all yeah, that kind of stuff. Contempt of court. Um, but as I inched forward with it, and I saw I was getting away with it, it made me do more and a little more until I I knew where that that line was, and I I stopped it. I stopped myself at a point where I, I almost said, "Fine." You know, I understand that this little off-reservation town economically is really doing poor. I'm more than happy to give you your $175 to help out. But I knew if I said that, I would definitely be in, in jail at that point. So, And yet, a- that's the root of what happened in Ferguson. That's what we now yeah. know was exactly what was going on in Ferguson. Yes. Um, and I think with Trump, he, he you know keeps pushing that boundary, testing to see just how much he can get away with. And he inched, you know, he, sometimes he inches forward and sometimes he just throws his stuff out there. And 
it's a mystery why he's not reined in. But the more that that happens, the, the more we see it happening. It seems to me that we're going to have to look at the meaning of language, period, as we go forward. What do the words mean? What is, what is the weight of the words that we are saying? What are the codes? I have long felt uh, from my side of the fence that we needed, for example, to restate all things having to do with slavery. For example, I no longer refer to people as slaved. I refer to people as having been enslaved because something was done to them. I don't refer to people being born a slave because the universe does not make you a slave at birth. Someone else does that. You know, um, people will say, well, they hate me because I'm black. And I'll say, no, they hate you because you're hateful because they are hateful. So I think it, you know, we have inject, even though, even those of us who may say we don't have Stockholm syndrome have kind of still ingested some of it. Yes. As we adapt the language. So I'm going to ask you something. The comment that you made to us explaining to us the language and, and your analysis of what's going on, how would you say that? to me or to a person who was Arapaho, how would you say what you just said? You mean speaking in Arapaho? Yes. So we can hear it. <laughs> well, first I have to understand, I have to play back in my head what I've said, because the exact wording, what you're asking for is tricky. Um, the exact wording is not the same. What I'm specifically asking is, if I were a child in the Arapaho Nation and you wanted to tell me what I needed to know, how would you tell me? If I was living at a time, and you at a different time, and you asked that question, um, I would say something like, "Nebat ha inanot, hebech hadina etin." So, essentially, that is, I want you to to know or to understand um, roughly the the importance of being a human being and living as a human being, uh, and encoded in that. So, it could be as simple as that, because encoded in that are messages that have come long before that while the person was growing up, messages that have come through stories. Some cultures, they talk, they talk about stories as shooting one with an arrow. The stories help us to, to um, re... How is it referred to? The stories help us to um, re, not reinvent, but sort of remake ourselves. And people misunderstand what that means. They think it means um, to be something other than you're, than you're not, but it actually means what you're moving towards is changing you, and you need to remake yourself back into who you're supposed to be. Mm. And so some, a sentence as simple as that um, brings someone back to those stories. It reminds them who they are as, a, as an Arapaho person. So it doesn't take a lot of discourse or lecturing. 
After our taping, Dr. Gray Morning thought about what he'd like to say to young people. He sent us this message, spoken in Arapaho. The land is ill. I believe when Indians lose their language, it will be bad for all people. I worry if we lose our language, we won't be able to think in an Indian way, in an upstanding way. Remember, our life is our language. If we lose our language, we will lose our ceremonies and ourselves. These things make us strong. Remember, be strong, live in a good way, and always protect the land. Know these things, and the land will be healthy. Coming up in our conversation across two cultures, age-old Africans tell the tale of Mother Lion and her cubs. Today on the Janice Adams Show, Roar! And more from our guest, Dr. Neahit Graymorning. We'll be back after this break. We're back on the Janice Adams Show. Thinking about our guest, Dr. Neahit Graymorning's message to young Arapahoes just before the break, it reminded me of my own life experience, the value of telling children what they need to know, sometimes as fuel, sometimes as inoculation. Visiting a cousin a while back, I was amazed to learn how little she knew of our family history. We were granddaughters of identical twin sisters. I thought our shared genes held shared memories. Not so. Talking into the night, we realized a painful divide. My mother, with stories passed down from her parents, had plied me with family tales and photos. My cousin's mother had scoffed at her African-American past. My mother had spooned knowledge of my heritage into me as if the tales were vitamins to ward off future chills to the soul. My cousin's mother had dismissed identical tales as worthless in her current reality. My mother encouraged me to see myself as part of a vast world. Her mother had internalized imposed limitations of caste and class, seeing herself as part of a vast void. Both of my grandmother's grandchildren had graduated college. We'd earned advanced degrees. My cousin, a lawyer, had even become a college president. Of her grandmother's 12 grandchildren, only half had earned a B.A., The stories we'd heard growing up weren't the only determinant of our successes, but they were certainly a factor. Driving home, I remembered a tale age-old Africans tell of a mother lion and her cubs. Sad and dejected, the youngsters cuddle against her back. They ply her with what they have heard other animals say about lions, terrible things heard in the jungle at play. Could what they say be true, the cubs ask, in two yelps just above a purr? 
What they hear told is not the lion life they know from their mother and father. It is not like the stories of majestic beauty, strength, and wisdom they so love to hear. In the time of your great father's fathers, their mother has told them. In the land of your mother's mother, their father has said, of that place of high grass and cool waters that nurtured their ancestors. In this history and in this present is the greatness they are meant to inherit, to live, to pass on as legacy. But other voices bring messages from afar, strange voices that own a different calling. What is to become of their lives, the cubs wonder? How will they find their way to being the lions their elders have told them they are meant to be, they fear, burrowing under their mother? Mother lion listens to her young ones, laps their ears, soothes their hurt. Then she stands. It is time to move on. Shaking the dust from her belly, she nudges her cubs to their height. Do not listen to what others who do not know say of you, she roars. Wait, your time will soon come to tell the tale. With that, Mother Lion and her cubs press on toward their pride. It was from my need as a child that stories of my ancestors emerged. It was from the depth of my daughter's questions that my books have been born. And it is from the wisdom of my grandparents and theirs that our answers have come. Pressing on toward our pride, we have rediscovered roots to bring us through the past, undeterred by misdirection and misinformation, no matter how great the creature chatter. Indeed, as I have come to understand across the years, what we tell our children as they approach life's crossroads begins with what we tell ourselves. I asked our guest today, Dr. Neahet Graymorning, member of the Arapaho Nation, what he would tell his young cubs, the young people of the Arapaho Nation, about who they are meant to be at this point in time. Oh, goodness. Um... Well, there's been, you can almost track this um, with the deviation from language, with the generations that have been losing language. We are seeing a rise in in a cultural discord, a cultural um, confusion over identity. And so youth are taking on um, identity of, other cultures and and doing things that they that is not Arapaho in nature. Um, there are gang wars that are starting to happen. There's a lot of drug that's entering drugs that are entering into um, into reservations, many reservations. So in the past, when that kind of shift was beginning to happen, those children, those the youth would be would be brought into certain ceremonies and they would be it would almost be a one on well it would be a one on one so the youth would be brought into a certain ceremony and there would be an elder who would lead them through that ceremony and in that ceremony they would be reconnected to who they were as a human being to be to understand um to better understand how they were moving away from that and some of those ceremonies um uh are starting to to weaken, 
because they're because the speakers are trying to do it through English because the people going through don't speak the language. Mm-hmm. And so there's something lost, and it goes again back to to those stories and hearing those stories. I mean, I remember there are people that I know that would talk about those stories, and I know you know many of those stories, and, and as my children do. Um, and that they're not happening the way that they happened in the past. And you used the word earlier, uh, encoded. Encoded in those stories are the very things that tell us what we need to know as far as how to be model citizens, um, how to do the correct thing. So oral societies didn't need to have those codes written down that you like you find in in Americans, well, European, American, European, or uh, other societies, where they've been encoded on paper. Um, the problem is, if you're not reading those papers, and uh, you know this this whole expression, ignorance is no excuse for the law. Well, if you've never seen those laws and you've never been exposed to them, then how can you be expected to live by them? Well, you are. In native societies, um, you heard those stories growing up. And those are the things that shaped you, shaped your psyche, shaped your being, shaped your identity. Do you have children? Yes, I do. My firstborn is Leanne. Um, she's around 44, I believe. <laughs> I'll have to, have to think through this. I don't keep track of ages. Um, but uh, then my secondborn, my son, David, is my secondborn. He was born in 1981. Um then my third born, Amber Jean Hisinatha, um, she actually carries an Arapaho name on her birth certificate, as well as my last born, Keith Talon Chechna, who gray morning. Amber is 26 and Keith is 24. What change have you noticed in your own parenting from the birth of the first to the birth of the youngest? Um, well, the biggest change is... I grounded my last two a lot more in the language and culture than than my first two. Um, but part of that is because um, my first two, uh, they were not, they didn't grow up with me. Uh, so they grew up separate from me. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the, that. And that happened at a very young age with both of them. Have they been able to cover some of that lost ground since then? Um, my second-born, David, uh, moved, moved to Missoula from Pennsylvania, and he's been here um, since 2009, I believe. Uh, and he's taken Arapaho with me formally and mm-hmm. informally, and he is trying to pass that on to his daughter. Did you grow up speaking Arapaho? I grew up um, bilingually. What are some of those iconic things that we may think of as being authentically one thing that actually are indigenously another? Well, there's lots of things. Um, I don't think people realize that uh, there's probably more than 50% of the states are native names. Ohio, for instance, Ohione means beautiful river. Mm-hmm. Um, so Massachusetts? Pretty, yeah, Massachusetts. Connecticut is, is, is yep, supposedly Connecticut. another, yes. 
the other thing um, for Thanksgiving is the, the it's interesting that you know people uh, you, and you may be aware of this that um, um, turkey seems to be the the center you know centerpiece of a meal. Well, that was not supposed to happen. Um, originally, when that iconic meal was supposed to happen, the native people brought in an eagle um, for the meal. And because the country was picking in an eagle as a symbol of the country, they had to find another bird. Interesting. I guess the eagles are grateful. <laughs> the, the, uh, the turkeys are not happy, but the eagles are probably very grateful for that. But on but on on another level, what then was the symbolism? If that's the case, that because the Europeans wanted to make the eagle the symbol, what did the eagle and the turkey already symbolize to the indigenous people? Well, the eagle, it varies from place to place. Many, A lot of people don't realize that and for a number of tribes, an eagle was part of a food source. Um, but people don't. So in the in um, American structure, the eagle that's that has become the symbol is a bald eagle. So that was the eagle that was brought. But it's the golden eagle that carries prominence among Native people. The golden eagle is an incredible bird. Um, it has the ability to fly. It has a special lens that can drop uh, drop over its eye that polarizes the sun. And so it can fly directly into the sun and still be able to see things. Um, wow. And it's the e- it's that eagle that um, people connect with as far as being a messenger between uh, Earth and the sky world. It carries prayers. Um, the eagle is seen as Nahuatl um, Babayan uh, looks from a looks afar can can see things. Um, in great distances. And so um, part of that carries an idea of being able to see things yet to come. If, if, a, if a person is Im, imbued with some spirit of the eagle. Uh, so it's the golden eagle that really carried prominence uh, and meaning for Native people, where the bald eagle, it was just another bird. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's why it wound up on the table. <laughs> In these last few minutes that we have with you, in the spirit of that golden eagle and the messages that it carries forward, I'm wondering about what it symbolically, realistically, is telling us or can bring from the past to the future to tell us as we go through this political upheaval in the United States and, and uh, social and, and <laughs> daily life upheaval, too. It's not just as remote as politics as we know. Well, this may sound a little radical, um, but the indemnable spirit of a golden eagle is incredible. Um, culturally, the individual was not a thing that was nurtured as far as, you know, your individual rights. The individual played into the rights of the community so that the community was balanced and and um, 
um, healthy. And so, therefore, if you did something to to upset that balance in health of the community, there are ways of bringing that back in balance. Um, and there, that could be a symbolic sacrifice, or it could be something more more permanent, uh, where you might have had to leave the community for a while. But there are always ways to to reintegrate you back in. But when we look at the spirit of Golden Eagle, um, ranchers would hunt the gold uh, the Golden Eagle back in the 70s. Um, and I remember hearing a story from a helicopter pilot who would be hired to hunt the Golden Eagle. And he just had the most incredible respect for this bird because he said the bird would maneuver in ways that no other bird could do. And he said he was taking out a rancher once who they had tired this bird out, and that's what they would do in the helicopter, chase after him until he got tired. And then the person would lean out the window and shoot the bird. Um, and he said this one time they leaned, they were after this golden eagle, and the, just when the guy was getting ready to shoot, he just veered the helicopter off. And the, the farmer said, what did you do that for? And he said, the bird looked over its shoulder. And he said, so what is that supposed to mean? He said he was looking at where the, where the helicopter was. And again, he said, well, what's that supposed to mean? And he said, the golden eagle will make a half loop into the blades of a helicopter and bring it down. And so I guess the message is that you know, one... I can tie that into another message that my uncle would tell me, and and he would, um, and I could tell Paul part of it in Arapaho. Um, he brought me out to an overhang uh, early in the morning when the sun was rising, and and we were standing over a pond and it was very still, and he said, "Hawata, um, um, He said. Um, um, God, my brain is working in English now, and I've got to slip into Arapaho. Um, God, um, the Akuta. Uh, oh God, God, I'm trying to think of his words now, exact words. I don't. All right, let me just continue because I know we're on a time schedule here. He told me to um, to pick up a rock, and he said, "Jinakuti, Jinakuti hichebe niech." He said, "Hold the rock." Over the pond, Jaawuset, Nachinakuti, and let it go. Tell me what you what you see. And so I picked up the rock and I dropped it into this still pond. And I told him that um, when the rock hit this the water, it made circles move out across the water. And what he said to me next ties back into that whole thing about the eagle. He said, understand one thing, that nothing is so small that it's not capable of putting something much greater than itself in motion. He said, those waves will move out, those ripples, those circles will move out across the... They put this whole pond in motion, and they moved out across the surface of this pond and moved things along the very edges of this pond. So, in one sense, you know, this eagle, symbolically, you know, has the capability had the has the capability of bringing down the very thing that that is threatening to destroy it, um, and it's making a sacrifice in doing that. And so, as individuals, we have the capacity to bring down the thing that is destroying the, the very the very essence of what we believe ourselves to be as a people. Uh, if 
we understand that we have that capacity to do that. And in that metaphor, extraordinary story you've just told us, I think it's what I'm hearing from you. It's not just that it has the power to bring it down. It's that it brings it down because of what it holds up. Yes. Thank you so much. Conversation Across Two Cultures with our guest, Dr. Neahe Craymorning. He's Professor of Anthropology and Native American Studies at the University of Montana, a member of the Arapaho Nation. Coming up on the Janice Adams Show, a tribute to my grandmother, a family remembrance of history, heritage, hope, and home after the break. This Thanksgiving weekend edition of the Janice Adams Show, I thought I'd close with a tribute to my grandmother, Myra Carlisle Landsmark, who, along with her identical twin sister, Mabel Carlisle Walters, would have celebrated their 125th birthday this week. In further tribute to family, the pianist performing the spiritual balm in Gilead is my grandmother's eldest daughter, my aunt. Marjorie Landsmark to Lewis. At the time of this recording, made on a cassette recorder in her home, she was 89 years old. She's now 95. Recently, along with Grandma's passport, I discovered her American naturalization papers and a citizenship book in which family and friends signed congratulations on December 5, 1955. My Lord, what a morning! In Alabama that day, Rosa Parks was in court facing jail for violating segregation's rule. Other blacks rallied around her, sparking the 385-day Montgomery bus boycott that catapulted a young Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to world acclaim. And in New York, my grandmother pledged allegiance to a flag that promised her freedom still denied blacks south of the Mason-Dixon line. Among the messages in my grandmother's citizenship book was this from her eldest daughter. Now you can go to Canada and home at last. Home. I remember hearing Grandma intone that word with a longing that left me in pain. After decades in America, home for her and our family was still her birthplace, the Caribbean Isle of St. Kitts. And so I had come of age the immigrant's child, an inductee in the integration generation, foot soldier in the army of the Lord, as we sang in the movement. I'd known moments of celebration and separation, disconnection and alienation, and after all that marching forward and sliding back, I was in sore need of healing and renewal. And so, decades after Grandma pledged allegiance to the American flag, worn out by my own struggles in the Promised Land, I heeded her ancestral call and headed to St. Kitts. The flight is smooth, the landing perfect, the welcome gracious. You are home, my hosts beckon. Ooh. 
The heat is so steamy I decide to acclimate slowly indoors. From my window, I can see the Caribbean Sea. Over the next few days, I will visit places I've heard of and seen, if only in my mind's eye, all my life. There's the aptly named Sandy Point, the sprite yellow gold monkeys of Monkey Hill, the Moravian Church where my grandmother and her twin were baptized. There's the bend at Kayon, to which my granduncle Hermie walked shoeless, asserting his religious conversion to Seventh-day Adventism, this to the chagrin of his proper Church of England mother. Stories of family and faith roll forth like tides to mental sand. A century of immigrant longing has made it so. People I don't know have heard the lady from the States, a writer she is here. Tis you the one? Yes, yes I am. Come to church for the fair. I bring my best sugar cake for you. Like the ancient parting of the waters, they have made a place for me at this welcome table. The historian in me cannot resist scouring records from the early 1900s to find clues to why and how I have come to be here. The history that stirred my grandparents to pick up roots and head to America opens before me. There are the strikes, the suppressions, the workers' dissatisfactions, the plantation owners' disclaimers, the government report of conditions so intolerable that to improve them would be to risk still greater demands, give them an inch, so to speak. I remember my granduncle Cyril telling me how he'd led a plantation strike, then had to flee for his life in the moonlight. Overwhelmed by the wealth of it all, I choose random newspapers from a stack dated 1916. The archivist assures me there's nothing about blacks in the papers from those days of staunch colonial rule, so I can save my time. But knowing how Grandma was counting the days that year until she could sail, I decide to read the news to feel something of her youthful sense of urgency, how she must have felt, watching and waiting as the clock ticked fast on her dreams. The St. Kitts Nevis Daily Bulletin, Monday, May 29, 1916. I spy the name of the composer, Edward M. Margotson. I knew him as a child, when he was organist at my family church, a review of his concert in fine print. Mandolin solo, Mr. H. Adams. Papa? The St. Kitts Nevis Daily Bulletin, Tuesday, April 18, 1916. This ad over my grandfather's name? Notice, the undersigned will sell at his stall in the public market tomorrow, Wednesday, Greenback Turtle. My grandfather was a butcher? In the States, Papa, my father's father, had a dairy truck, bought two stores, and owned property, as West Indians say of real estate. And yes, I can still see his mandolin nestled into the pale striped liner of its old black case. I held his mandolin, I tell the librarian. I did. She runs to tell the other archivists. Everything stops. They're as thrilled as I am. Not every researcher makes such a fortuitous find. So your grandfather was white, she muses. No, he was black. Mr. Margotson, too. He was black and he owned a business in 1916, she exclaims, stunned. But my God, can you beat that? No, 
No, I can't. Papa was a musician and a butcher. My grandfather owned a business when most black Catitians could barely own the shirt on their backs without white plantation owners finding cause for suspicion. In 1899, my great-grandmother owned her business, too, a land and carriage trade she'd inherited from her father. Who were these people, this black business class of a century ago? And who am I? This 1970s rebel who took to the streets in a rage my great-grandmother would have found unladylike, inappropriate, and thoroughly distasteful. If she had hid my granduncle's shoes to prevent his forsaking the Church of England to go to the wrong church on the wrong day, Saturday, what would she have had in store for me? Me with all my picketing and protesting and letting out my hair in public unstraightened. And yet, her children, the younger generation of 1916, had come to the States, rebels in their own right, in search for a better life, sacrificing everything they had dared to come because they could hold such dreams. The aspirations, if not the affirmations, of their elders made possible, perhaps even made necessary, their climb. In their colonized society, they had contributed their dreams and pledged the lives of their children to progress, to freedom, to the future, to me. The arc of my back set against the breeze at Frigate Bay, the waves pulling at my feet. I've been so busy and content in my quest. Only on this last afternoon of my visit do I have time for the beach. I remember seeing my grandmother off on her first trip home to St. Kitts after 43 years. Her eyes dimmed by cataracts. The grandmother in her could barely see when she departed New York. Not so the girl in her who landed in St. Kitts. For months, this Lena maid knew, visited old friends, daily bathing her sore eyes in the Caribbean Sea. When she returned to us in the spring, Grandma had changed. You could see it in her shoulders as she retrieved her hard-won passport at customs. Right-angled, erect, Grandma returned to our embrace, reaching for us one by one. I see you all now, plain as day, she said. In St. Kitts at the neck of the bay, I look into the waters, clean as a mirror, and find my face. I, too, have come a distance of decades, a journey from desegregation baby to finding home. I, too, can see clearer than ever these ancestors of mine. Can they see me standing here, child who carried forth their dreams, bearing calabash of mind and time? What's in the root is in the branches, Grandma would tell us. Let it be so. Today on the Janice Adams Show, we've been having a conversation across two cultures with our special guest, Dr. Neahit Graymorning, and my Thanksgiving weekend tribute to history, heritage, hope, and home, a family remembrance. For more about today's show, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, thanks for joining us today. I'm Janice Adams. <laughs>